Welcome to ShopCast, talking retail strategy with your host, Michael Dart. In this program, we'll spotlight the changes you need to know about in the world of retail shopping and help you plan for the future of the industry. Now, here is Michael Dart. Good morning and uh, welcome to ShopCast. I'm Michael Dart and I'm your host. I'm a partner at AT Kearney and I'm also co-author of the book, Retail Seismic Shift. And I'm glad that you could join us today. I have two great guests with me, uh, Pam Danziger. Uh, Pam is a speaker, author, uh, incredible market researcher. Uh, she's done a tremendous amount of work understanding what's going on with the consumer, uh, particularly the world's most influential consumers, the uh, American affluent, including one segment that she even coined uh, the term Henry's, high earners but not yet rich. Uh, but Pam has spent a ton of time thinking about retail, doing a lot of primary research in and around retail and the consumer, and will be sharing with us her thinking both about how to create an incredible retail experience. Uh, she's written a book, Shops That Pop, and we'll be talking about uh, what she thinks works there. Um, but she's also very recently been looking into and doing research around how marketing is changing in our digital age, how the consumer's expectations have shifted and become elevated, and the traditional marketing paradigm that uh, many companies use is no longer applicable, and we'll be talking about her ideas on that. My second guest is Lauren Hirsch, and Lauren is the retail consumer reporter for CNBC, and we'll be talking about what's happening in the retail world, predominantly from an investor perspective, where people are putting their money, why they're putting it there, and what they think is going to be uh, most attractive and some of the best trends that we can see in the future. So I'm excited about uh, chatting um, in that whole world with Lauren later on. Before we get started uh, with uh, Pam, I just wanted to give a quick overview of what I think about experiences. Uh, it's such a key topic and it's one that we'll be covering as retailers try and create incredible experiences. Uh, but I wanted to share at least eight powerful ways that I think experiences uh, can be created to really add value to the entire retail experience. And let me just touch on these. And I do, by the way, want to give credit here to uh, Kevin Kelly and his great book, uh, The 12 Inevitables, which uh, uh, lays out a lot of this thinking in many, many different markets and, uh, uh, and ways. Uh, he coined the term uh, generative. And a generative is a quality or attribute that must be generated at the time of a transaction uh, to create value. And at such a critical time for retailers to really be thinking about how to draw traffic to the stores, uh, I thought this would be at least an interesting uh, way to begin the conversation with Pam. And so here are the eight. The first is obviously immediacy. Um, can you get the product there? No, it's there. Uh, that's why buy online, pick up in store is so powerful right now because people will still go to the stores, but they want to make sure that they're going to be able to find something. And obviously, the closer you can get your stores to the consumers and guarantee that, that's going to be important. Second one is personalization. A huge amount of personalization is taking place inside the stores. You can customize apparel, uh, but how do you really create a unique experience for an individual consumer as they come into the store. The third is interpretation. Uh, sometimes people don't want to just learn about uh, or just buy the product. They want to learn about the product. They want to understand why it was made, how it will perform. And obviously this is a critical attribute in, in many segments, particularly the active lifestyle segment. Uh, so interpretation is critical. Authenticity is the next one. How do you 
uh, articulate and create a story around a brand or a product, something that you can't really do on the web alone. And so again, that uh, point of contact with the consumer when they come into the store to really understand that you have a pure, distinct point of view for that particular product or brand is uh, is something which is really valuable. Accessibility, how do you create the product available anywhere, anytime? We're seeing new business models coming up with that, whether or not it's renting uh, uh, cars, renting uh, uh, runway dresses, you name it. Uh, but how do you create accessibility for the consumer and create, again, just something that they don't necessarily have to own the item, but they know they can at any point access it. The sixth is embodiment. Um, many, many concerts are streamed online, on the web, but people will pay hundreds of dollars to actually go to the concert because being there is worth so much more. If you actually go to New York on any given weekend and even during the week, there are people lined up outside the museums to pay $25 to actually go and see the real works of art. How does a retail experience create that type of embodiment where people will line up, queue up and go in to see something? The last two, patronage. People want to go and reward the creators of their best products, people who are aligned with all of uh, their values, their ideas. And, uh, and how do you, again, get your message through and create that synergy with your consumer where they want to come and, uh, and be a patron of yours? And the last one is discoverability. Again, there's no value for a product if people can't find it. And there's huge value of creating an environment that's engaging, entertaining, with a fast flow of new products, new ideas, uh, that create an experience for the consumer that, again, they just wouldn't be able to replicate on the web. So with that backdrop of creating experiences, I'd like to formally introduce Pam. As I said, uh, she's a speaker, author, um, tremendous researcher. Uh, she's actually the founder of Unity Marketing and does a huge amount of research to help brands with actual insights in terms of how they think about focusing on their customers and meeting their needs. Uh, she's uh, a member of the Small Business Advocates Brain Trust uh, with Jim Blessinggame and is a contributing columnist to The Robin Report and Forbes.com. And as I mentioned, she's a prolific writer, including the book Shops That Pop. So, Pam, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. It's nice to be with you. So my first question is, um, what led you to become so interested in retail and the consumer and and how did your journey kick off? Nearly everybody I speak to, it always is, uh, it seems to be a step of serendipity, uh, but curious uh, what's led you down this path and uh, how come you remain so passionate and interested oh. in, this, uh, in this segment? <laughs> well, it is a long story. Um, and I, like so many other people, when I was in college, I started working in bookstores because I'm, I'm an avid reader. And that interest led me to think about going to graduate school um, in, in library science. So I went off and, and I got my master's of library science degree, started working. I never worked as a traditional librarian. I was always working with information in a tech environment. Before we had the Internet, we had big mainframe computers, and, and I worked in that kind of environment. And it, it eventually led me into not just managing other people's information and other writers' information, but creating my own. So that led me into market research. And, and of course, my, my interest is, is the consumer and understanding the mindset of the consumer. And that also comes out of the library background, which was all about serving and servicing the users and getting them the information they needed. Are there any particular pieces of research you've done recently that um, 
have had a you know a huge impact that you've been surprised about uh, the feedback from uh, any of the journals or the the folks who've read your articles? Well, you know, I I, I started writing for Forbes dot com uh, about a year ago, and in mm-hmm. their retail track, and that's been my, without a doubt, my highest profile platform. And I'm always surprised at the stories that I write that really interest me and really engage me. Because I guess I'm a, I'm a bit of a data nerd. I'm a bit of a, you know, I really get into the details. Those kinds of stories don't necessarily get the eyes that some of the other, you know, sexier, uh, hotter topics do. Like I, I wrote one about um, President for, or President Trump uh, declaring war on Amazon, and that mm-hmm. got a huge number of hits. So what's popular on uh, to other people may not be what really turns me on. And what was the soundbite about uh, Trump declaring war on Amazon, if there is a simple way of uh, synthesizing that article? <laughs> well, it's just that ultimately, as in any war, the, the citizens, the, 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 the people on the ground, they, you know, they're, they're going to be the, the casualties in that war. So I think that, you know, that, that Amazon has done a huge service for consumers. And mm-hmm. yes, they've, they've been very hard on retail, but actually I believe Amazon has effectively changed retail for the better because it really has, has changed the game. So um, that, that was essentially my, my uh, conclusion about Trump's war on Amazon. Interesting. So the casualties would be the consumer if he actually did launch a war against Amazon because they do such a great service to uh, to the consumers and everyone loves them so much. It's indisputable that they have done a tremendous service. And as I say, they've raised the bar for other retailers, which I think is ultimately making re- the retail environment and the retail market better, even though it is incredibly painful when, when you're trying to compete with them. Right. One of the things I'm, you know, just tangentially a little concerned about and curious you have an immediate reaction with Amazon is just how little tax they pay, not only because uh, there's been obviously these questions about have they been paying sales tax in some states, et cetera, and they're resolving all of that. But secondly, because they don't make much money, uh, the retailers who used to make the money pay taxes and Amazon is not making money and therefore there's no taxes. And that could have presumably a big impact as uh, as they gain share. I'm just curious if if that's something that you've thought about and uh, think is, is a good Well, issue. I mean, I, I'm hardly an expert in, in the tax area, but my understanding is that, that Amazon, what profits they would have, they are funneling back into research and development for their own brand. And I think yeah. that that, you know, they're using the tax laws to benefit themselves. But again, with all that research and development, it's ultimately, I think, bringing about um, tremendous changes and, again, and raising the bar on retail in general. Yeah, that's right. And on that note, you've uh, you've written a book called Shops That Pop, which is all about retailers raising the bar and creating great experiences. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about the book and uh, a flavor for what's, uh, what's included in there and how retailers are raising that uh, experiential content. Well, you know, when I when I coined the term shops at pop, it really was, you know, I was coming from the marketing and the advertising world where something pops because it's really exciting, and that's what a shop that pops is. It's a, a shop that really creates extraordinary experiences for the customers. And, you know, it, Seth Godin wrote the book, The Purple Cow, talking about mm-hmm. how you have to have remarkable experiences to get people to talk. And I think that shops at pop are as rare as purple cows are. 
are in, in the real world because you just don't find they're, they're, the shops that pop are virtually extinct in any mall, any big shopping environment. Where you find them is on Main Street, and that's why the book is written about and for specialty retailers that really, you know, they rub shoulders, they rub rub you know, shoulders every day with their customers. They know them intimately, and that's why they can really succeed, whereas, you know, these big chain stores just don't have that personal connection. Well, what makes a pop that, a shop that pops? And, uh, and can you give us an example of one of your favorite shops that really, uh, really does this? Well, you know, th- w- you know, when I think about shops that pop, I mean, they... It, all the academic research in retail has found that, it, that there are two factors that affect how much people spend when they go into a store. One is the amount of time they spend in the store, and the mm-hmm. second thing is the amount of interaction that they have with the displays, with the, the products, with the people that are in the store, and so on. So the more they touch, feel, and, and talk, the more money they're going to spend. And if you can create, I mean, if you can enhance the amount of time and if you can enhance the amount of interaction in the store, you yeah. are going to grow your sales. I mean, that's why that's why grocery stores have milk in the back of the store, because it makes you search through the store, spend more time there, hopefully get you to pick up a few more things when you're going through the store. But that's the, sort of the secret, and I've, I developed what I call the pop equation. There are yeah. seven specific strategies that retailers can use and implement that will help them increase the amount of time and also also increase the amount of you know interaction with with the customers and you know I, I don't need to go through all of them but I mean one of the most important ones is creating curiosity um, that's an inherent you know human need we are all yeah. curious animals and if you can make your store curious on the outside where you know people see the displays and they want to find out what's going on and curiosity is what brings people in the door, gets them to walk down the aisle and turn the corner. And, you know, it's, it's curiosity. And I think that too many retailers opt for being straightforward and sort of, um, you know, plain and really don't work the curiosity factor. So that's one of the things that I think um, really would enhance and, and create a shop that pop. And another one is, is convergence, really designing yeah. your store and the atmosphere of your store and the music in the store and the, the salespeople in the store. I mean, have everything tell a story, which is, you know, back to the, to the, uh, the, the uh, points that you were making in the introduction about creating yep. experiences. You really need to think about your store, your retail environment as a whole story and all the different elements that you can manage and, and put together and weave a, a real story around. Yeah, um, yeah. And well, Pam, we can take a quick break since I interrupted you there. Um, but I want to come back and, and actually talk a little bit more about each of the C's that really create this uh, uh, popping environment because I agree with you that uh, if you can engage the consumer, I wanted to study uh, where – uh, it was in uh, the footwear where you, if you could get somebody to actually measure the size of their shoe and talk to the shoe associate, then the conversion rate just went off the chart. So how do you create that? And, and I, I love the, uh, the idea you have around curiosity. But let's take a short break now and then we'll come right back with Pam Danziger and talk about shops that pop as well as how marketing is shifting. Find 
out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Only 12% of companies from the original Fortune 500 list remain on the list today. How do you ensure your organization stands the test of time? A.T. Carney works with Fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question. Visit atcarney.com to find out more. There is no one-size-fits-all solution for optimizing your sales and marketing organizations. Yet how you sell and market is a tremendous differentiator. Value Prime Solutions uses proven formulas and frameworks with a customized approach to increase your sales and marketing ROI. To learn more about how we can help you, visit valueprimesolutions.com. The American consumer market will soon include six generations for the first time. Prepare for the era of personalization and total connectivity with insights from consumers at 250. Join the conversation at atcarney.com forward slash consumers 250. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. You're tuned in to ShopCast, talking retail strategy, featuring Michael Dart as your host. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Shopcast, and I'm Michael Dart, your host, and I'm here with Pam Danziger, and we are talking about shops that pop. So, Pam, you were mentioning a number of ways in which retailers can think about creating shops that pop. Uh, You mentioned curiosity. I'd be curious if there's a couple of other of your seven strategies that you'd like to highlight. And then secondly, is there a retailer out there that you think embodies a lot of these principles who's doing this that scale retailers could take some lessons from? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I the the most important thing about about managing a retail operation, I mean in a store, I mean a, a brick and mortar store, the most important thing is the people, the people factor. It's it's not only the customers that you serve, but it's also the the people that you have employed in your store who are doing that customer interaction because it, it's the people factor that is most important. That's a, a specialty retailer's secret weapon to compete against Amazon and all the other online retailers because they can't touch and feel and have a personal connection. So all, all about shops that, you know, making your shop pop is, is focusing on that people factor and, and getting the right people in the store and, and that are there to serve the customers and draw them in. And, and from a big retail point of retailer perspective, Wegmans is one of the most uh, best examples. You're out in San Francisco. You may not be familiar with them. They're a, yeah, they, they are them. a big northeast grocery chain, but they are a store that is most loved um, by by consumers that, that serve that they serve because they have nailed that people factor by selecting the right people to work in their store. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because so many retailers have focused on labor in the stores almost just from a cost mindset. And over the years, it's how do we make the tasks more defined? How do we take labor out of the stores? How do we have them, you know, almost be 
pre-programmed in what they're doing and how they interact with the consumer and taking a lot of the uh, spontaneity and excitement, I think, both out of that job and also a lot of consumers' jobs. Is that a fair comment? And is that uh, a very different experience? Obviously, I know Wegmans, but I've never really uh, experienced it on a day-to-day basis but because of the geographic difference. But uh, do, how do they do that? And is that uh, is that a fair comment? Well, I, you know, it, again, it's. It, I think too many retailers look at the, the people, the employees, I mean, as a cost. But really, they are, they're the ones that are ultimately servicing the customer and the ones that are selling to the customer. And they really, you need to invest in your staff <clears throat> to, be, to be there and to, to service the customers. Because, you know, we talk about, and you, you talk about this in your book, The Retail Seismic Shift, is that we don't have a supply problem. We've got a demand problem at retail. Right. So it, it really is about, it's about the people and it's about that people interaction. And that's that human element that is never going to go away. And Wegmans invests a lot in their employees. They, they, they hire in young people, you know, from, from college. Many of them, many of them stay with Wegmans throughout their entire careers because they, they, they promote from within. They help with education. They help with uh, training. They really develop their employees who then are delighted to be in the store. And that's, you know, that's another part of this whole pop equation. If you, you want people to be delighted to be in their store, well, how are they going to be delighted? If you have salespeople and staff on the floor who are delighted to be there. And how many of us have been in a store where, you know, there's a person there that should never, ever touch, have anything to do with a customer. They've right. just, you know, it, it really, yeah. it is, it's a huge factor and it's, it's grossly overlooked by management of retail. I've been super impressed with the way Best Buy's done this recently as well. Yeah, obviously a sector that people thought was doomed to fail against Amazon and all the online competitors. Uh, but their in-store experience really has taken a notch up. I found the employees to be really helpful. I found navigating the store to be a lot easier. And they've also got some really great product displays and booths where somebody like Apple can actually create a story as well, which makes it engaging. And so they seem to be somebody who's done it well at scale. Do you have any other uh, experiences, either, you know, great ones or poor ones of, uh, of retailers at scale who are doing this? Well, <laughs> I think that there are far more stories of retailers that aren't doing it um, yeah. than, than ones that are. I think that's the exception, not the rule. And it really, you know, it's, it's, it, it is hard to scale because we're talking about people now and people right. are human beings. Um, but I think that it, it's got to do with the quality of the management at the local level and how they're managing the, the employees. And it's, 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 a, it's a big, it's a human factor that is really hard to, to program and systematize. But retailers that figure out how to do it are going to be gre- greatly rewarded by it. Yeah, no, I think that's right. It's one of the reasons why if you're an entrepreneur founding a, be- a business, a retail business, and and running it right now is fun because you can imbue all of your creativity into that experience and it is so rewarded by the consumer and you can make it so differential it may be hard to scale but at first getting something going and uh, creating something that really is interesting and unique 
is uh, is something that I think an entrepreneur could actually do and be pretty successful. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that in so many ways, the you know new and and I think in so many ways these these brands that are born on the internet that are now opening stores have got this huge advantage because they're not they're not uh, trapped by you know years of uh, conventional wisdom and traditional yeah. training in retail. They're writing their own book, and I think that's what's going to make them so successful in the future. Uh, I think that's right. Can I switch then to uh, how you think about marketing in this uh, seismic shift that's taking place in marketing? Uh, what is your thesis in uh, in a nutshell, and how is it starting to play out with different retailers? Well, it, I mean, it goes right along with this whole idea of the, the new and emerging experience economy because things don't make people happy. Experiences make people happy. All, that, all the happiness research shows that. And, again, we've got so much product. But people, you know, when, when we think about shopping and buying, um, in the past, and, you know, in, even in the, 20th, in the 20th century, just, you know, 20 years ago, to go sh- to buy something, you needed to go shopping first. But with the rise of Internet and Amazon and online shopping, shopping and buying have become disintermediated. So to buy something, I mean, you sit at your computer and you do a search on Amazon, you find what you want, and you're a Prime member, and you click it, and you've got it in two days. To go shopping is a decision that you make, and it's a decision that you want that shopping experience. So the whole four P's of marketing that we've all been trained about, the the product, price, promotion, and placement, which guided us through the 20th century and was very successful through the 20th century, just is not adapted to this new experience economy model. And that's why, you know, the four E's is really a way of evolving from the four P's into creating these experiences and recognizing how the, how, how consumers have changed. So the you know, product has now been replaced by experience okay. and, um, and, Exchange, which is an exchange for value, has now replaced price. Um, evangelism is the new promotion, and that evangelism is about you know is about word of mouth, not just social media, but actually getting people to talk about a store or a retailer or a product, and then. Every place is is now the new place. So we really need to think of, of of evolving from you know rather than pushing product out, we need to start mm-hmm. thinking about pulling consumers in through through that experience experiential need. They don't have a product need anymore. They got an experiential need. And what do you mean? Can I uh, ask you to you know dive just into? You know, what you mean by exchange is the new price. What, what is that concept getting at? Well, uh, you know, again, if we look at what's going on in retail, and I mean, Robin Lewis has, has talked about this so, so expertly. I mean, it's like everything has been dumbed down to discount, discount, discount. And I mean, the, how low can you go? And, you know, whoever, you know, if you win on the price game, you know, you, 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 you've lost any profit that you possibly are going to have. So exchange is all about the idea of exchanging real and meaningful value to the customer for, you know, for, for, for money. And that's part of it is explaining it. I mean, when people are given choices between the cheapest, um, the mid-price or the most expensive, I mean, they most 
they often, or like 80, 85% of the time, will choose the middle price, the more premium, but they need to have an explanation. They need to know what they're getting for their money. Because if you, if it's just, you know, a a strict generic kind of product, if it's just a commodity, they're going to opt for the cheapest price and, and be very happy about it. So it's, it's all about differentiation in explaining the value and making it clear to the consumer that they're getting more than simply, you know, a basic product. They're getting something with a little bit something extra for that right. little bit extra money. Well, to, to bring it to life, uh, um, you wrote a really interesting piece that compared how Zara and H&M, obviously H&M has uh, been struggling recently and, and actually quite challenged, uh, and you used the framework. I wonder if you could just... You know, using those two retailers, talk about how one has embodied it more than the other one and what some of the lessons are. Yeah, well, you know, I think that, again, I think what I see is that H&M is really still very much using the push marketing approach where they want to push product out and you know that people are going to are going to come to them because they're they're looking for something they're looking for something cheap they're looking for something fast they're looking for something that you know will be on trend now whereas Zara is really has yes they've got they've got their fast fashion, but they really put a lot more thinking into the experience for the customer when they come into the Zara store and making it an enhanced, you know, more upscale feel in the store. I mean, H&M, you know, I I can't say that I've visited every H&M store, but the ones that I visited are really don't look well tended. They don't look well maintained. They aren't, you know, I guess, you know, I can see the framework of merchandising, but they really are kind of messy. Whereas Zara has a, has a very nice appearance and, and the ones that I've experienced have been, you know, more, you make you feel like you're in a more upscale environment, not in a discount dollar store environment. And Zara has also now implemented this new uh, technology where you can, you, you, if you have your smartphone and you go up to a window, you can, you can access a, a, a sensor there and actually see clothes that are on display being modeled by a, by, by a, a model on your phone. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's sort of a, that's a real experience. And I mean, I think that's honey for, for the millennial generation. Um, to, are to, you a big fan of augmented reality? Do you think it's going to be a big, uh, a big trend for, for scale retailers like Zara to do, to put this in? Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of a contrarian <laughs> In, in the technology, I just don't think we're there yet. I mean, I think I think what Zara's doing is very interesting, and I think you have to be out there trying new things. And as I say, yeah. I think for all these kids, the, the millennials, um, which are kids to me, um, would will really gravitate toward that. But I, my feeling is that at least for the next five years, ten years, I'd, I'd rather see the investment on the part of retail in the back room and an inventory and enhancing all of the operational stuff so that they can free up the staff to do what they what they need to do, which is interact with the customer. So use the technology to help the, the staff interact with the customer is my advice. Interesting. Yeah, really interesting. Interesting contrarian perspective there. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back uh, with Pam uh, to continue our discussion about uh, uh, the marketing shift that's taking place. You're listening to Shopcast with Pam Denzinger and Michael Dart. 
out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Only 12% of companies from the original Fortune 500 list remain on the list today. How do you ensure your organization stands the test of time? A.T. Carney works with Fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question. Visit ATCarney.com to find out more. There is no one-size-fits-all solution for optimizing your sales and marketing organizations. Yet how you sell and market is a tremendous differentiator. Value Prime Solutions uses proven formulas and frameworks with a customized approach to increase your sales and marketing ROI. To learn more about how we can help you, visit valueprimesolutions.com. The American consumer market will soon include six generations for the first time. Prepare for the era of personalization and total connectivity with insights from consumers at 250. Join the conversation at atcarney.com forward slash consumers dash 250. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. You're tuned in to ShopCast, talking retail strategy, featuring Michael Dart as your host. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Shopcast. I'm Michael Dart. I'm here with Pam Danziger. And we've been talking about uh, the big shifts that are taking place in how to create retail experiences and obviously in, uh, in marketing as well. So, Pam, my final question to you, given everything that you've been researching, studying, writing about, seeing out there, what advice do you have for major retailers? What do they need to be focusing on uh, to be successful in this new era we're entering? Well, I think the first thing is that they really need to be dedicated to getting up close and personal with the shopper. And, you know, they, they've got to get out of their corner offices and they have to get on the shop floor and they have to really interact with, with the customers. And I mean, they need to make the, the entire management team, the executive team, um, have time on the floor. Because, you know, I think that they're relying on big data. Big data gives them the ability to, to chart and graph and talk in the world and in the, in the, the last language that they feel comfortable in, but they really need to, they need to understand the mindset of the, of the consumer and really understand their worldview. And I think, you know, the retailers will be greatly rewarded the closer that they can get to the shoppers and, and the more they can really understand. So getting up close and personal with the shopper, I think, is the first thing. And then another thing I think is really important is that we tend to look at retail from a vertical perspective and we we look at our competitors that are that we compete with directly in that, that vertical market but shoppers don't look at the world in a vertical way they look across all kinds of areas and and we need to be thinking about the competition for the customers um, mind and their money and their attention and their time um, yeah, yeah. beyond just just those vertical categories well Pam I want to say thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your wisdom. Uh, really appreciate it and uh, look forward to reading many more of your columns in Forbes.com as well as on the Robin Report. So, so thank you. Thank you so much, Michael. 
I'd like to introduce our second guest today, Lauren Hirsch. As I mentioned earlier, she's the consumer and retail reporter at CNBC. Uh, she was the deals team leader at Reuters. Uh, interestingly enough, liberal arts background, comparative literature from Cornell, uh, before getting her MBA from the Tuck School at Dartmouth. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So my first question I ask everybody, uh, uh, tell me how you've ended up so far focusing on retail and consumer goods and writing about all of those from your comparative uh, literature background. Uh, well, I would say it was more I was looking for a job in journalism and the first job I found was covering the consumer retail industry at a trade pub and then, you know, it's an interesting sector and it kind of did me well, so I've kind of followed it for the past couple of years. So I fell into it, but it was a, um, a lucky coincidence, I would say. Great, great. Um, you've obviously written a lot of articles, a lot of great pieces. Any particular one that uh, uh, had a major impact, uh, surprising to you and, and people reacted to that uh, you didn't necessarily expect? Um, well, I wrote a story about Toys R Us saying that they had hired um, attorneys to help weight bankruptcy. That ended up causing essentially a run on the bank and made them file for bankruptcy before the holidays and before they had a plan. So, yes, that definitely had wow. a, um, <laughs> an impact I was not expecting. I think that that is definitely the most um, impactful story I have done. That, and so that was just coming out of your research and networking. You broke a, You were able to break that story just ahead of them being able to figure all of uh, uh, their planning requirements yep. out. That's, that's something. This, this is my sources, yeah. <laughs> so tell me, uh, you spent a lot of time uh, focused on the retail and consumer world. Uh, what do you see as the latest trends out there? Um, what's driving investor activity, whether from M&A or private equity investors? Um, what do you see is going on? Sure. So I would say the biggest thing I am seeing right now is just this idea of conversions is not, certainly not a new theme, but we're seeing retail companies making big bets and kind of outside of their sector. I think the old idea that, you know, more real estate is the solution is is out of style, it's out of touch. You're seeing CVS Aetna, you're seeing um, Rite Aid um, Albertsons, you're seeing retail companies saying, hey, more real estate isn't the solution. We need capabilities. We need vertical integration um, and kind of doing deals in that way. Uh, the other thing uh -huh. I would say that I'm seeing a lot of it, and this mostly from an investor perspective, but I think that people are very weary of relying on, you know, department stores, third-party retailers. They're focusing a lot more um, on brands. So I think that any brand that A, resonates, and B, is able to sell directly to consumers is something that both both private equity investors are very interested in and also um, strategic. So those are two pretty strong themes that I'm seeing. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, the, the merging of healthcare and retail is such a, mm -hmm. a huge theme right now uh, that we're seeing across the board as as some of these companies are making enormous investments in and around that space to uh, to attract the consumer and to utilize their space and, and obviously drive them to the stores as well. Uh, the other one you mentioned is interesting on brands because uh, a lot of people have argued, including obviously Jeff Bezos, that uh, to some degree brands are dead and he's going to take away the uh, the profit margin associated from brands. But I'm, I'm with you that I think you've got an authentic a uh, great brand that uh, really means something for the consumer, that that has a lot of invest, uh, 
uh, investment potential and a lot of uh, value. Are there any particular brands or stories that you think stand out uh, across that dimension? Um, I mean, I think that we're, I think the brands that are able to get you into kind of in their network, and if you look at what Warby Parker has done, it's, it's glasses, yeah. right? But they've been able to create a whole network. You subscribe to their, um, you kind of just are your, you're loyal to them. So I think that brands that are able to kind of go beyond the, you know, to be at this point, brands can be pretty fleeting, but if you're able to kind of not only get loyalty, but essentially get them onto your platform, then you have a way to kind of keep your customer yeah. going. So I, yeah, I would say that Warby Parker is a pretty great example of that. And another one which came to mind uh, uh, for me, I'm curious if, if you think the, uh, uh, the investment's a good one as well. as like Bain Capital going into, uh, uh, is it Canada Goose? Um, yeah. You know, that seems like it's a strong brand, got a lot of dimensions to it. Any uh, any reactions to that? Is a, a good I think it's a great one. And it's funny because, you know, in your earlier conversation, you were talking about discounts. And a big part of Canada Goose is not going on sale and yeah. kind of relying on the strength of its brand to say our brand is so, not only is our brand so strong that we won't go on sale, but our brand is not going on sale. Um, so yeah, I think Canada Goose is a great example of a, of a you know, it's, you could argue that it's, some people might argue it's, it's overpriced, um, but they have convinced <laughs> the consumer that it's worth paying for. And, you know, again, to go back to Bezos' comment, you know, another thing that I think, it's not a new theme, but it's a consistent theme, um, you know, it's the barbell. And so Canada Goose yeah. is, is one side of the barbell. And I do think that, Fast fashion, I think, is actually maybe, I think, it seems more sitting. it's tempering a bit, and it seems like the focus now is spending more, you know, is spending money on clothes that last, um, or more on brands that people think are worth it. Um, and Canada Goose certainly fits into that end of the spectrum. That's interesting. Of course, you know, even within, you know, the barbell where you've got the uh, uh, low price, if you like, on one end of the barbell and uh, luxury on the other, uh, you have a barbell within a barbell within luxury because, of course, Montclair makes Canada Goose seem pretty cheap as well. That's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so it's pretty funny. Um, uh, that's interesting. Now, um, a lot of investors um, seem to be uh, going after smaller and smaller deals and smaller and smaller mm. companies, at least from my vantage point. So the era of the really big mega uh, deals consistently in either retail or, quite frankly, in consumer goods seems to have uh, waned somewhat. And I'm curious if that is a, a fair observation that I have and if you have any reflections on that. Yeah, I think it's a really big theme. I think you're seeing it for two different reasons. On the consumer side, that's just where the growth is. Um, and the problem is that large strategics, the big food companies, they're so hungry for growth that, you know, anything that's relatively of size, they are clamoring for and they are paying huge prices for. So if you're a private equity firm and you want to buy a food company, and many of them do because it's a very hot space, you kind of have to go early right now because you want to beat, you want to beat the strategics. And on yeah. the retail front, um, again, that, that's where the growth is. And I think that's where people feel a little bit more confident putting their bets. I think that there is a lot of, uh, scar tissue leftover from, you know, this this bankruptcy boom that we've seen from LBOs. And I think that people are very weary of going down that route. And so yeah. it's funny, I talked to private equity investors at big firms, you know, large cap firms. And I'm like, what are you paying attention to? They're like, you know, small growing companies. 
Um, I just think that's where they feel the most secure, um, you know, not getting into the messy brick and mortar nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Lauren, we're going to take a short break now, but we'll come right back and let's pick up on that theme about where people are investing and, uh, uh, and what we think is going to happen in a number of these different sectors. Uh, this is Shopcast. I'm with Lauren Hirsch, who's the retail consumer reporter for CNBC. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. The American consumer market will soon include six generations for the first time. Prepare for the era of personalization and total connectivity with insights from consumers at 250. Join the conversation at atcarney.com forward slash consumers 250. There is no one-size-fits-all solution for optimizing your sales and marketing organizations, yet how you sell and market is a tremendous differentiator. Value Prime Solutions uses proven formulas and frameworks with a customized approach to increase your sales and marketing ROI. To learn more about how we can help you, visit valueprimesolutions.com. Only 12% of companies from the original Fortune 500 list remain on the list today. How do you ensure your organization stands the test of time? A.T. Carney works with Fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question. Visit atcarney.com to find out more. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at VoiceAmericaTRN. You're tuned in to ShopCast, talking retail strategy, featuring Michael Dart as your host. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to ShopCast uh, with Lauren Hirsch, uh, retail consumer reporter from CNBC. So, Lauren, uh, curious to know what are the big stories that you are currently following? What uh, What's happening out there that uh, you think is interesting and exciting? Well, I just finished a huge story I did on Hershey. Um, and Hershey is basically doing what every big food company is, which is, A, find, looking for growth in snacks. And, B, you know, just take a step back. A couple years ago, we saw this wave of CPG companies buy really tiny to our earlier conversation, really tiny, quickly growing food brands that just got A, lost, and then B, didn't lift the needle. And now what we're seeing, we saw it with Kellogg, General Mills have done this, Hershey is now doing this, is companies buying larger brands like Skinny Pop, which is what Hershey bought, and basically creating a satellite operation. So Skinny Pop is going to be um, the home of Hershey's small brands. And the idea is it'll solve all of the problems that Big Food has had, it will keep them independent. It will help them manage young brands. And I think the jury is out on whether or not that model works, but it kind of really has to because these companies, all these big food companies, have not been able to find any form of growth, and they really need it. So I think that that is, that is a really big theme. And then kind of a, an addendum to that that I think you know all big CPGs are struggling with is this idea of, you know, putting money where they're making money versus where they want to make money. And I was just listening mm-hmm. to, you know, Pepsi's 
earnings call, and Pepsi has really been struggling with trying to launch new on-trend products, see them not move the needle, taking their focus off drinks, you know, or off soda. I didn't see, you know, diet Pepsi sales slow. I didn't say, okay, actually, we're retreating. We're going back to Pepsi and diet Pepsi. And you kind of get it from a macro perspective because that is where they make their money. But, you know, to my earlier point, it's not where the growth is. And so seeing how companies kind of straddle the balance of, you know, the golden well where they make their money versus preparing for the future and sending off new rivals, which are not going away. Um, I think that will be another really big theme. Well, you mentioned two uh, really interesting big ideas there. Uh, As you know, I argue that we're in the demassification of uh, so many different markets. The mass markets are becoming smaller and smaller markets and often refer to this as, you know, even from craft foods with a K to craft foods with a C as a way mm. of reflecting that that uh, uh, segmentation. So just going back to your story on Hershey and, and for those of people who don't know what Skinny Pop is and what they've yeah. been doing, could you just add a little bit of color around that so that uh, uh, they can they can get a sense of how the chocolate company is reinventing itself? Sure. So, um Everyone probably doesn't know what Hershey is, which is it's a chocolate company. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically what Hershey's strategy has been actually for a couple of years, um, it's to buy outside of chocolates. They bought, well, to buy in part outside of chocolates. They bought beef jerky, which was a very hot beef jerky brand. Um, and at the end of last year, they bought this brand called Skinny Pop, which is the number two popcorn brand. The number one is owned by Pepsi. Um, but it's super popular. Millennials love it. it you know, it sells quickly on a show. And Hoshi's theory was, A, we just bought this really hot brand. Isn't that great? But um, B, Skinny Pop is a snack. Oh, by the way, what is chocolate? It is a snack. So mm-hmm. the idea was take something that looks like it's products from kind of a mathematical level, from a surface level. It sells quickly. It's an impulse per purchase. It sells in convenience stores, much like chocolate does. Um, but it's just a little bit more on trend than chocolate. Um, and right. frankly, that's an idea that, you know, Kellogg, of, yeah, Kellogg bought RX Bar, which is a snack bar. Campbell bought Snyder's Lance, which is a snack company. Um, we're seeing a lot of big food going into snacks because, I, A, it's a growing area, and B, it's actually a um, the area of food that responds really well to investment. So if you put marketing dollars, you put new innovations behind it, you can actually um, find growth where something like cereal, for example, yeah. you can add protein, but it's it's not going to sell. I think everybody uh, I speak to, just a tangential on Hershey's and chocolate, by the way, is yeah. that uh, they're just really concerned that they're going to mess up the Cadbury formulation still in the UK. And you can't actually get the pure UK formulation over here these days. So just uh, I know there's a lot of people worried about all of that, but uh, 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 that's just a tangential point. No, uh, and, and I will tell you what, I went, into the, I went to the lab where Hershey makes chocolate and they do not like this. You know, the narrative that Hershey chocolate is subpar to European chocolate, Hershey takes um, a lot of offense to. They would say that the European taste just isn't as sophisticated. That is oh, their <laughs> rebuttal. <laughs> all right. Well, I take that one. I take it back uh, and I'll tell all of my friends that. <laughs> uh, so your second point is a classic innovator's dilemma. You make all your money in these big markets and uh, – uh, you can't spend the the resources on all of these little micro markets yet. That's where all the growth is, and, uh, and eventually, of course, you find yourself being disrupted. Um, 
And that's how the CPG companies and that you mentioned Pepsi uh, are trying to navigate these waters. Uh, is there a good example of somebody who you think has done a good job of navigating that trade-off really well? It seems that uh, uh, the pendulum swings one way and then the other for a lot of these CPG companies, and they end up destroying a lot of the small companies they end up buying because they just don't add enough money to uh, uh, to their you know their engine of growth. I mean, not their engine of growth, their engine of cash flow, I should say. Yeah, and it's funny because I would say, I mean, I hate to, you know, give Pepsi a hard time, but Coke actually does seem to be doing a pretty good job of, A, reinventing their old product, kind of be more in trend, and B, they bought, um, I'm blanking on the name right now, Choco Loco, something like that. It's like a competitor to the Craw, and if you don't know what that is, it's a very hot, sparkling millennial drink. Um, and it seems like they have done a better job than others, um, of retaining it, but I would say aside from that, it's really, and I would say another example, um, and it's a relatively old one, but uh, General Mills and Annie's, General Mills that kind of clobbered when it acquired Annie's, which is an organic, I mean, I think of it as organic macaroni cheese, but it's much much more than that now, Um, but when General Mills bought it, they got clobbered for it, they were overpaying, people didn't understand the deal, Um, but it's been a huge growth engine for General Mills. I mean, it's it's a much larger brand than some of these tiny bets that these CPG companies are making. So that has helped. Um, but that has been that has been an example. But I would say there's far more examples of failures, for lack of a better word, than successes. It's great to have you on, Lon. I'm curious. Uh, General Mills's big acquisition recently in the pet food space. What do, what do you think about that? A lot, again, a lot of people had the similar reaction to what you just outlined for Annie's that. Uh, they've overpaid. There's no way they can get a, a great return. I think uh, um, their stock price fell, as I recall, immediately afterwards, et cetera. But curious what you think about that uh, uh, that well, opportunity. The, I didn't check their price today, but it's been – I mean, it has stayed down. So I think investors still have concerns. Um, I think it goes back to the challenges that we're seeing in the CPG. I mean, it's pet food. I think people are worried about it being a new um, – new area for them. But yeah. I think even though Annie's has been okay, I mean, General Mills is desperate for growth, like everyone is. And I don't remember if I said this or not, but there's a, there's everyone wants to go into snacks and all that fun stuff. There's actually very, very few assets available that are growing to kind of check all the boxes. So yeah. if you want to do a big deal and you want to be into, go get into a growing segment, you kind of have to... I don't know that you have to, but if you want to make a deal, you you have to kind of think a little bit outside the box, which is what I think drove General General Mills buying Blue Buffalo. But I will say that people that I speak to have concern. I think that they see the stock price; they're concerned. I think that they worry about you know how they're going to integrate it. Um, I, I think that that is definitely that deal is not yet proven in many people's eyes. Right. Last question, Lon. Appreciate those perspectives on uh, Blue Buffalo and General Mills. Last question. Um, what do you expect us to see over the next 12 months? Uh, any any types of deals or areas that uh, investors might want to pay particular attention to that spring to mind? And, uh, uh, or, you know, even some idle speculation, possibly, if you have any of that, which would be interesting uh, for our listeners. Yeah, so I think, you know, I think we'll continue to see CPG food companies looking for growth. And to that end, we'll, we'll continue to see multiple that everyone says are crazy until they go ahead and 
pay that multiple themselves because those are just yep. the multiples today. Um, I think on the retail front, we'll continue to see deals we wouldn't expect that's so vague, but, you know, kind of non-traditional pairings of companies because, as I said, um, real estate is not, I think, the solution for a lot of these people. And I think, frankly, yeah. what we won't see that much of, um, and this is something that I'm paying a lot of attention to, which is big bets on e-commerce. You know, two years ago or one year ago, we saw, you know, we saw Walmart Jet. We saw a couple of other really big bets on e-commerce companies. And Interesting. I think it's, I, I think it's kind of TBD if that, if that not, you know, how easy Dollar Shave Cup Unilever, I think it's TBD if that model actually works after the initial headline. Well, that's interesting because obviously there's a big one in the pet space as well um, mm-hmm. that, uh, that I know. Uh, actually, any reflections quickly just on the amount of debt that's out there on a lot of these retail deals that were done and, and um, how things are going to pan out? Obviously, a sad story for Toys R Us, a number of others. Just any, any reflections on that debt level that's out there right now? I mean, I think, I think, I think it's kind of clear at this point what happens to a highly leveraged retailer, especially one you know that's now several years into the cycle, and as a result of it, that hasn't been able to keep up. I think it's, I think it's really hard, and I think you know that's why Nordstrom didn't get done. I think people have learned their lesson when it comes to Nordstrom was a publicly traded company that wanted to go private through a leveraged yeah. buyout, and lenders didn't want to put the debt on the company. So I think. There will be more bankruptcies to come for sure. Okay. Well, Lauren, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate it. That's Lauren Hirsch, uh, Retail Consumer Reporter for CNBC. Uh, thank you. And uh, this is Michael Dart signing off on this week's episode of Shopcast. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to Shopcast, talking retail strategy. Please join host Michael Dart for another edition of the program next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And check out past episodes at any time on demand. We hope you enjoy your week.